Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. The year is 1912 and the location is Villisca, Iowa. Families wave goodbye as the Moore family and two of their friends left for the homestead. This was the last time anyone would see them alive. Our main source today is The Man from the Train by Bill James. While the book covers quite a territory when it comes to axe murderers in the early 20th century America, this episode will be focusing on just the Moore family massacre and the key suspects from that case. With that, let's get into the deaths and fallout from the Villisca murders. In 1912, Villisca had a population of around 2,100 people. This particular night, Sunday, June 9th, the streetlights were out. The town had had a dispute with the power company over prices. The Presbyterian Church had a Children's Day service beginning around 8pm at night. Josiah and Sarah Moore had gone to the service with their kids, along with two children that were friends of their daughter, Catherine. As they left the church, the girls requested a sleepover at the Moore house. Josiah, or Joe as he was more commonly called, had to call their parents and run it by them. The Moore house was out of town and the girls were meant to spend the night with their grandmother. Joe called the Stillinger house. He talked to their older sister on account of the parents being out and she gave full permission for the girls to spend the night with their friend. Now everyone in town knew Joe. He was a local business owner and was a cheerful, well-liked man who was pretty well friendly with everyone. The house was small and plain and had a barn out the back to accommodate food and tools for their two horses and two cows. There was also a chicken coop outside, full of chickens of course. Inside the building it was very plain. A sewing room in the corner that connected to the parlour. Across the hall was the kitchen with the walk-in pantry. Upstairs opened directly into the master bedroom that was connected then to the children's bedroom with a closet to the left and the right. One of the closets opened up into an attic space that was roughly the same size as the kitchen area. The house fell asleep that night, unaware that they wouldn't see the morning. Neighbor noticed that the Moore house was still. No one had been out to attend to the chickens or feed the horses and cows. At 7am she knocked on the door. It was locked, and no one answered. She couldn't peer into the windows. Drawn curtains blocked all view into the house. She let the chickens out and called Joe Moore's brother, Ross Moore. Ross called Joe's business and was told that Joe hadn't been in that morning. The clerk, Joe's 2IC, walked to the Moore house and knocked on the door, but walked back to the store when the locked doors didn't give and the knocks remained unanswered. A little after 8am, Ross was worried and paid the house to visit himself. The neighbour had gone back home at this point, so Ross was left alone to check the house. He first looked after the livestock. The animals were all fine. He circled the house, banging on the windows and yelling out to try and get someone to answer. Now, perhaps due to the noise that he was making, the neighbour came back to observe. With the lack of noise, Ross pulled out his key and unlocked the door. He had to force it open 
for reasons that we'll get to in a moment. Inside was clean and neat. I don't know what would have hit him first, the incredible stillness or the miasmic air. Normally, the parlor would function as a bedroom for young Catherine Moore. Last night, she was upstairs with her brothers. Instead, when he opened the door, he found blood everywhere, along with the bodies of the two young girls, not part of the Moore family. Ross immediately left and stopped at the front porch steps. The city marshal, Hank Horton, had seen a stranger around 9.30 the night before as he chatted to a night watchman in the city park. He asked a stranger to identify themselves and the stranger simply ignored them. Horton asked the night watchman to shine a light at him, but the man disappeared into the street lightless night. In addition to Hank Horton, there were two night watchmen. A county sheriff supported them, but he was located 30 clicks away in Red Oak. None of these guys were trained policemen, and none of them had ever dealt with anything like what was phoned in by Ross. Hank got to the scene immediately. Using matches and armed with his nightstick, he slowly made his way through the house, partly observing the scenes, partly ready for a killer which may still very well be in the house. He found the bodies of the family, eight dead in total. Joe Moore, 43. Sarah Moore, 40. Herman, 11. Catherine, 9. Boyd, 7. Paul, 5. To round it out, two girls, Lena and Ina, Stillinger, 11 and 9, respectively. The heads of all the victims had been beaten in, repeatedly hit with the blunt side of an axe. Sarah Moore had been hit at least once with the bladed side. It was in the parlor bedroom that they had found the weapon, a rusty axe taken from the family shed. Upstairs, the ceiling was low, just a bit too low for a man of average height to swing an axe overhead, but there were marks on the ceiling indicating that's what happened. They would need to look for a shorter-than-average man as their suspect. The house itself had been covered and locked. Mirrors had been covered with cloth or clothes, and the windows that didn't have shades were covered with sheets. Every door and window had been locked or wedged shut. On the kitchen table was a wash basin, full of bloody water. In the parlor bedroom was a slab of bacon, pulled from the family's icebox. It seemed to have been used as a masturbatory aid. As Horton left the house, he instructed a watchman not to allow anyone into the house, then ran into town looking for a doctor, specifically Dr. Cooper. On the way, he stopped at the city hall to call the sheriff at Red Oak for help. It was 9am when Horton returned to the house, Dr. Cooper in tow. Horton then returned to city hall where he called a private detective he knew, Thomas O'Leary from the Kirk Agency. He also called the county attorney, a coroner, and a few more doctors. He got authorization from city officials, once he told them of what happened, to call up the National Guard to surround the house and call the bloodhounds. Although Alphonse Bertillon would photograph crime scenes roughly a decade earlier, the use of cameras to photograph crime scenes was not a standard yet. A local drugstore owner had expensive equipment and made himself valuable to document the scene. But after only a couple of photos, he was ordered out of the house by a coroner. 
Now, Alphonse had used a tripod that stood over the body to take pictures. Perhaps the drugstore owner utilised something similar, and thus was in the way of the coroner as he worked on the bodies. Either way, the instructions to keep unauthorised people out weren't enforced as well as Horton liked. He estimated some 20 or so people had been through the house before the National Guard arrived around noon. In the meantime, Horton had been making himself busy, asking around town if there had been any strangers that seemed suspicious. Volunteers were organised to search through the sheds or barns around town, looking for bloody clothes that may have been discarded. On either Monday or Tuesday, Horton questioned every neighbour within the site of the Morehouse. No one had seen anything unusual. It was 9pm Monday when the bloodhounds got to town. Having been shipped 215 kilometres west, they caught the scent of someone at the scene of the crime and trailed down the block. For a moment, they stopped at a neighbour, Frank Jones's house, then took off again, where they lost the scent at Nottaway River. Calling it quits for that night, they picked up back in the morning, where the dogs followed the exact same route to the river. Later that day, a coroner's jury went through the house and viewed the bodies, which were then removed to a makeshift morgue in the fire station. Over the course of the next few weeks, private detectives and press would swarm the town, as well as people with a morbid curiosity who had heard the news. The funerals were on Wednesday, June 12th, and were attended by about 7,000 people. According to the coroner and other doctors, the victims had died shortly after midnight Sunday night, and they had all been murdered in their sleep. All except, perhaps, Lena Sillinger, according to the testimony of Dr. F.S. Williams. Lena, quote, lay as though she had kicked one foot out of her bed sideways, with one hand up under the pillow on her right side, half sideways, not clear over but just a little. Apparently she had been struck in the head and squirmed down in the bed, perhaps one third of the way. Lena's nightgown had been pushed up and she was wearing no undergarments. It appeared that the killer had used her underpants to wipe the blood off his hands and the axe handle, as there was lint clinging to the handle itself. She was found with a blood stain on her right knee and a defensive wound on her arm. Now take the next bit of information with a little bit of grain of salt, since it wasn't on the official record, but it was told to a private investigator after the fact. The coroner told Z.W. Toby that Lena had been sexually molested after she was dead. All the bodies had been covered with blankets, except for Lena's arm, which had fallen out of the blanket. Inside the barn nearby the house was a depression in some hay, almost as if someone had made a bed there. It's presumed that the murderer waited there and watched the house go dark. And that really ends the murders themselves. For such a grisly murder, there really isn't much information surrounding it. So, we're going to actually look at some of the potential suspects. First, we'll look at Frank Jones. Being one of the most successful men in Villisca at the time of the murders, Frank Jones had built a small fortune in his hardware and farming business. Later, he funded a bank and owned a car dealership, though this wasn't as lucrative as one would be today as it was 1912, and not many cars were sold in general. He was also a politician. At the time of the murders, he was running for state senate. Jones was a leader in his church, 
and by all accounts, an upstanding man. People who had known him for decades said that he never drank liquor, avoided even beer, and had never heard a curse word slip from his lips. His relationship to Joe Moore could be described as fine. Previously, Joe had been an assistant in Frank's hardware store before leaving to start his own, becoming Frank's competitor. Joe took with him a chunk of business, as well as customers who followed Joe to his new store. Despite this, there's no record of bad blood between them. Frank, after all, had done the same thing years before to his employer, and as mostly in the case of small towns during this time, they were seen more as friendly business rivals. Now, he was never prosecuted, and the only reason he was investigated as a suspect was because of a con man private detective trying to extort money from him. Enter James Newton Wilkerson, who we'll hear more of later. He was an intelligent but low man. $250 was put up by Sarah Moore's father, and that call was met by Wilkerson. With nothing more than rumours to go off of, the murders had been two years prior. Wilkerson began to sniff around. It was about this time that a writer called Jack Boyle got in contact with Wilkerson. In the summer of 1915, Boyle confronted Frank Jones, claiming he was in possession of evidence that proved Jones's involvement and offered him a chance to tell his side of the story. He invited Jones to his hotel room, where Wilkerson was laying in the adjacent room, hiding, set up with a dictaphone to make a record of whatever was said. Jones was taken aback by the claims, but ultimately refused to go with Boyle to his room. He offered to have the interview in his office back at the store, but he would not be going to a hotel room. Boyle said no, it had to be in the room. Jones said no, it had to be in the store or not at all. So it was not at all. Now, weeks later, another reporter approached Jones. Bell, using the name Daly, ran a popular racket for the time. He told Jones that he had come into possession of reports concerning the murders, and they were very damaging to Jones. But, for just a fee of $25,000, Jones could purchase the reports and lock them away so that they never see the light of day. Wilkerson had a hand in this, but took a defense that it was not blackmail, but rather a clever ploy, a little trick. If Jones paid for the information, it meant that he was hiding something. Jones told Wilkerson, Boyle, and Bell where they could shove their reports. He wasn't paying them a cent. Wilkerson then began a campaign to persecute Jones. This ultimately failed, probably due to Wilkerson being full of shit, the presenting evidence that was full of shit, and having testimony from characters that were also full of shit. A man called William Mansfield also took the heat for the murder for a spell. It was certain that he had killed his wife, in-laws, and infant child with an axe two years after the Moore murders. At the time, he was believed to be a serial killer due to the similarities with his case and a string of unsolved axe murders in towns nearby. Wilkerson was initially involved with this case, first trying to get Mansfield to confess to sending Jones to kill the Moors, then to handling the Moors murders themselves. According to a lawsuit later that favoured Mansfield, they set about doing this in 
very early 1900s fashion. Mansfield was repeatedly punched, loosened some of his teeth, threatened with his life, stood with an axe above his head, and then, while driving over a bridge, threatened to be thrown into the river. Even with all this, Mansfield didn't crack. Thanks to payroll records, we know that Mansfield wasn't involved in the Moore murders, but authorities that time were certain. Mansfield was a tough guy, having spent time in Leavenworth. He didn't give a false confession due to police brutality. Lack of evidence led to his release, and in the lawsuit I just mentioned, he won $2,225. There's probably more that I could talk about in terms of Mansfield, but he ultimately was uninvolved with this case, so we'll move on to the next suspect. Born in England, Reverend L.G.J. Kelly, Lynn Kelly, was a physically, and what it sounds like, mentally and morally weak man. I'm going to quote directly from The Man from the Train because I absolutely love how it's written. These categories miss his central liability, which was weakness of will, of focus, of energy, of determination. Almost all of us are weak in some of these ways and stronger in others. Reverend Kelly was that rare and unfortunate man who was weak in every area. You see, the Reverend was occasionally caught peeping in his neighbor's windows, taking flight once the husband ran out to confront him. When he became excited, his speech devolved into incoherent ramblings that were hard to follow. And in his letters, he would lose his train of thought mid-sentence. Reverend Kelly had attended the Children's Day service in Villisca, the same one that the Moore family and the Stillinger girls had before their murder. Despite the title, Kelly wasn't really a reverend. He was essentially an intern, having taken a seminary class in Omaha and travelled around to various Presbyterian churches, learning the preaching game. He didn't stick around in any one place for too long, as one of his faults in character was not paying debts. After the murders, but before he had been prosecuted, he'd been thrown out of divinity school and denounced by the South Dakota Presbyterian Churches Association. During the night of the murders, Kelly was a block away, sleeping at the house of a minister who invited him to the service. When he heard of the murders, he became almost instantly obsessed with them. He wrote to the Moore's minister begging him to arrange a tour of the house. It's too bad he couldn't wait, since nowadays it's only $428 for an overnight tour where he can even sleep in the house. Pretending to be a detective from England, he wrote to the governor of Iowa and others connected to the crime, explaining his theories of that particular crime. He tried to work with two detectives that were active investigators of the case. C.W. Toby wrote Kelly a fairly blunt letter, basically telling him to fuck off. Thomas O'Leary suspected Kelly might have been involved in the crime, so indulged him for a bit, at least to discern that he had no clue what he was talking about. In the Villisca Hotel, in one instance, a night watchman had to escort him back to his room because he was acting out his theory on the murders with a real great intensity. 
Now, I would like to think that he had his own axe and was swinging it about, but sadly that wasn't the case. He came under fire in December 1913 when he put an ad out for a secretary, since he now wanted to be a writer. Now, that wasn't the problem. The problem came from the girl that answered the ad. Writing back to this 16-year-old girl, he explained that the position required her to sometimes pose nude for him. Nude in places where they would be completely alone, where no one would know where they were, and that it was critical that she had to be secret so that no one knew what they were doing. You know, run-of-the-mill secretary stuff. The girl agreed, and I'm just joking, of course. She called the police right away. Early 1914, he was arrested and confined to a mental institution in Washington, D.C. While he wasn't the craziest that they had seen, he was most definitely the most annoying. He was constantly ranting, faking suicide attempts, groping prisoners, and talking endlessly about the Velisca murders. The Red Oak Sheriff was told that he had confessed to the murders, but upon interviewing Kelly, the sheriff was fairly certain that he wasn't involved. Ultimately, Kelly wasn't prosecuted for the salacious letter to the minor, and he went back to playing detective. Maybe the dirt he uncovered was the reason why Iowa Attorney General Horace Havner took an interest in him. So much of an interest that the Attorney General was sure that Kelly was responsible for the murders. Now, Wilkerson gets involved with this case as well, and tries to get Frank Jones caught up in it, working on a theory that Frank Jones had orchestrated the entire thing, orchestrated the persecution of Kelly. Kelly was arrested, and thanks to his weak will and some elbow grease from the detectives, he gave a confession. This was quickly retracted as soon as he had slept and talked with his lawyer. Now, ultimately, the evidence against Kelly was the confession... He was in Villisca the night of the murders. There were some claims that he had spoken about the murders before they were publicly known. Allegations that he had a bloody shirt sent to the laundry out of town. Clear evidence that he was a weirdo who dealt poorly with his sexual urges. Kelly was also left-handed, and there were some who believed that the murderer might have been left-handed. With a redacted confession, an alibi for the night of the murders, and testimony that amounted to hearsay at best, baseless rumours at worst, Kelly was also weak and inept, too weak and inept to have convincingly killed all eight in their sleep without a single rustle. His trial began September 4th, 1917, and ended three weeks later on September 26th with a hung jury. Eleven wanted acquittal, and one wanted not guilty by reason of insanity. Attorney General Hanver was determined and requested a retrial. November 24th, Kelly's second trial ended with full acquittal. While this story is all but concluded at this point, I wanted to share a final story about Wilkerson. Wilkerson lost steam with the investigation. See, there was no one else to extort. He had become involved with a man called Warren Noel. In September 1917, Noel was being investigated by the county sheriff for writing bad checks. In October, he staged an incident in which he claimed to have uncovered a plot to derail a train and murder Wilkerson, who would have been on the train. 
when he held his hand out for a reward, since he seemed the train company, you know. Officials didn't even consider paying him. Noel sold his car, brought with bad checks, and filed an insurance claim stating it was stolen. The insurance company, like the railroad, didn't even think about paying him. Although the two companies probably would have liked to, they really didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him for these scams. On October 31st, 1917, Noel took a train east from Beliska. At the stop, he mailed a letter to his wife, claiming he had been seized and was being held hostage. The next morning, Noel was found on the platform of the freight depot in Albia, Iowa, about 200 kilometers from Villisca, with a bullet in his head, his revolver laying beside him. The coroner ruled it a suicide. Noel was well insured, and this left his widow very rich. Here's where Wilkerson pops back up. The couple, for they were a couple now, Travelled together to Ottawa, Iowa. They registered under assumed names and got adjoining rooms at a hotel. It was here that they were spotted by state agents. Now, state agents were very low-level police officers. They handled a lot of technically against the law on the street. Bootleggers, poker games, street hustlers, hookers, a lot of crimes that fell into the category of why are they crimes? Surely you have better things to do. One law, like above, prohibited adultery. Wilkerson was a married man, you know. State agents rushed to the room and put their ears to the door, occasionally peeping through the windows. Wilkerson and May Noel were found sharing a room and arrested with the charge of adultery. But it didn't stick. The next morning, the charges had to be dropped. The agents were too hot on the gun and had caught them before they had actually adulterated? According to the rules, they had to listen first for the bed springs to creak before they could bust in, so instead they just charged them with conspiracy to commit adultery. In late 1918, Wilkerson actively and aggressively defended himself in trial. It was a quick one and ended with a hung jury. May Noel was never tried. Wilkerson left Velisca in disgrace. Returning at least once more around Christmas time 1918. Heading to a bakery, he ran into Frank Jones on the street. The two had some choice words together, and Frank instigated a fight with a swift kick to Wilkerson. They were soon pulled apart. And those are the events that surround the Velisca Axe murders and some of the suspects of that crime. If you're interested in similar cases, I recommend further reading The Man from the Train Book, as it outlines a lot more axe murders and uses statistical analysis to determine who the killer was. There's certainly a couple more cases touched on in this book that I wish to devote an episode to in the future. But for now, that is all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>